Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are AppSats certified clinical partner specialists and coaches. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are AppSats certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is no, there's just nothing that we can't do to help you. Now, I'm not sure why that intro skipped like that. My apologies. Um, it's not a record, it's a, a recording, so I'll have to check into that. And wow, it is good to be with you today. I know, you've been through a lot, and you're here listening on the radio because you want more information, and that's what we're going to give you. We're going to give you information on trauma, an area that is near and dear to my heart, Um because this kind of event, finding out about the discovery and dealing with sexual betrayal creates a lot of trauma. Now, maybe you're lucky enough that you don't have post-traumatic stress or complex post-traumatic stress, but I know you have to be having some accompanying depression or anxiety. And yet, for most of the women that we've researched, we, you know, we did a research um, survey, and they did report PTSD symptoms, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. And so I've got an expert who's going to be sharing the information that she feels can help you to make better choices in terms of how to take care of yourself. We're going to be interviewing Angela Bolin, who is an LMFTA who specializes in partner betrayal and trauma and family systems, and she really has made it her own to want to help you all to heal. And boy, I got a magic wand in my office, and if I could use it, and if it really, really worked... I would have partners reduce their symptomatology because it can feel so overwhelming. And then it can layer um, and, and create symptoms that feel unmanageable. And so we always say that truly the antidote to partner betrayal is a lot of self-care. If you remember, we had Galen Emerson on last week, and she talked about that, that it is so important for partners, no matter where they are in their relationship, to really make themselves first. Just had a man in here, and he's a partner. And one of the things that he did was that he was able to give his anger a voice. And I'm cleaning out old file cabinets, and I had all this anger um, information 
You know, when you need to externalize your anger, oftentimes it's really helpful to write a letter, not to give, but to write a letter to the person that perpetrated against you and really make it your own. You might have heard me say this before with sexual abuse victims. I have them write two letters. One is civil, nice, natural, normal, but very thorough. Explains exactly why he or she felt so betrayed. The other one is venomous. And I'd say get as ugly as you can. Get dark. Say the most hateful, terrible, horrible things to get it out of you because more than likely, even if you don't say it, you feel it. And so we want you to acknowledge it so that you can help to then honor that anger, decide how you want to use it, and move forward. Well, with trauma, you know, trauma causes a stress response that affects every organ in your body. And it starts in the amygdala when you're in that fight, flight, or freeze mode. It affects your ability to think. It can shut down your digestive system. That's why so many women lose weight because they don't have an appetite because their digestive system is shut down. And so clearly, we feel like self-care is the antidote to um, the trauma and the responses and the after effect of sexual betrayal. So I'm going to ask you, what do you do to take care of yourself? You know, what, what puts a smile on your face when you just don't even have any energy or desire to smile? You've got to be able to you've got to be able to honor those things and stay separate from the man or the woman that caused you all the betrayal. We understand why you feel that way, but it's important to really look at resources that are going to make you feel better. So this man started a journal of all the reasons he was angry. I got another woman um, who I'm working with, and we had such an intense session the other day that I said to her, now, how long does it take you to get to work? She said, 20 minutes. I said, okay, what is something you can do in 20 minutes it's going to neutralize all this pain. You've just talked about all this pain and you have to go back to work. I want you to be able to neutralize it. I said, you know, Sirius has comedy, Sirius Radio. Not very good comedy, I might add, but they do. Um, maybe you like to sing. Can you sing for the next 20 minutes some of your favorite songs? Maybe you love music. And you want to listen to your favorite genre. Maybe it would mean driving around and finding 10 things that you appreciate. Right in the here and now. 
I'm out of Indianapolis, the Midwest, and we've had some pretty cold weather and a lot of snowstorms. And my husband, after December, I didn't actually know this until he told me this this week. After December, he doesn't want to see snow. He's like the Grinch about snow. So Sunday, it started to snow, and he screams up at me, you better get out there and walk. It's going to snow. It's snowing. Carol, it's snowing. And I said, well, I'll be down in a minute. And he goes, <laughs> he's a clean freak. So he wanted me to get out there before it snowed so I didn't bring snow in with me. That's the real issue. But anyway, I I looked like a snowman when I came back. It was so beautiful. And it was big, fluffy snow, and it wasn't slick at all, and it was just an amazing power walk. So after I get cleaned up, he's going to drive me, and we're going to do some errands. And um, I said, look at this place. This is beautiful. Oh, my gosh. I hate snow. And I said, I know you do, but can't you at least appreciate the snow on the trees or the the river over there? He goes, no, I can't. (laughs) Not not. Not after December, I can't. I can appreciate it in December, but this is it. Well, so I gave this woman, I'm going to tie this back to my client now, I gave this woman uh, the homework assignment to spend her time finding something she appreciated on the way back to work. And that might be the clouds in the sky. That might be your favorite grocery store. I don't go to Whole Market, but he was saying that nine months into opening up his first store, Austin had the worst flood in 70 years, and they lost everything. And that the neighbors came to his grocery store. Talk about drama. The neighbors came to his grocery store for days in and days out, cleaning up the sewage and the mud and the uh, you know, all the debris and the meat and the produce. And he said, you know, I just knew that this was a sign from the heavens that I was in the right business. I I cared about feeding my community good groceries, and they cared about me. So he appreciated the muck um, because of what it taught him if you will. Now, I'm always really careful. I mean, I don't expect partners to appreciate the muck in their life right off the bat because they're, they're swirling from it. They're drowning in it. I mean, I just want them to be able to get a good night's sleep. But about two to three years into recovering from betrayal trauma, you should be able to identify some things in your life that's really working. It may or may not have to do with the betrayal. And if you can't, you probably need to increase the kind of care you're getting. You know, if you're just going to support group, seek the right counselor or coach. If you're just going to coaching and counseling, maybe look at an intensive. If you've done an intensive but you don't feel any better, 
maybe look for a way to give back, to make a difference in the world so that you feel good about you. You get the thread that I'm, I'm working with here, that you have to be able to change up your life if your life isn't working. And unfortunately, so much of what you've been through is so not your fault that it can feel overwhelming. So I'm going to ask you to at least change the way you think. Because when you change the way you look at things, the things around you change. And so maybe that's you say to yourself, I am not going to think about my husband for three days. I'm just going to focus on my girlfriends. Or I am not going to think about this betrayal for 24 hours. I'm going to focus on having fun. Or I am tired of wondering what he's doing. I'm just going to focus on my beautiful kids. So think about that and think about how you can change what you're focusing on so the things around you change. And that's a good way to deal with betrayal. So we're going to be talking with Angela Boland. And again, she always looks at trauma through a lens that allows her to understand what is happening in your life, to your mind, your body, your spirit, and your soul. So I want to welcome Angela Bowen to the show because we need to learn more about trauma. Angela, welcome to Betrayal Recovery Radio. How are you? Hi, I'm great, Carol. How are you? I am excellent. I was just talking to my listening audience about the fact that I really want them to neutralize to the best of their ability some of their experience, at least for a little bit during the day. They don't have to do it all day because it may just be too overwhelming. But I would like for them to be able to appreciate what's working in their life. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I think that kind of fits into that trauma-informed model where we really look at voice and choice and um, and really helping, you know, solutions-focused, helping people to build on their strengths. Um, so for sure, being able to um, to look at the things that are working well and use those for building blocks. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you have really made it your mission to help partners of betrayal understand their trauma. How did you get started working with partners? Yeah, so actually um, I got started um, in community mental health, and so um, they were very diligent about helping us uh, become trauma-informed. And so um, because we were working, you know, with children and teens and families and um, couples that were experiencing relational discord, we had to go through um, a certification process. Mine was actually through um, Harborview uh, Sexual Trauma Certification. But really um, that was the first introduction to, you know, trauma-informed practices. And so... That, like I think you mentioned, that whole lens of how we look at things um, becomes different, right? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. so 
you and I both really feel like this is rewarding work because we get to see the transformation that can occur when someone has been so devastated and then they're able to understand more about their trauma and not blame themselves so much for all that the trauma can cause. I was wondering, um, tell us a little bit about some of the things that you see partners do that that is normal, but yeah, may, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I think initially, um, you know, when I first get partners, right, they're going through this very normal process. You know, there's kind of specific hallmarks for partners that um, are, you know, they're responding basically to an attachment breach, a safety breach, right? So. Um, Really helping them understand what is happening to them is normal. Um, You know, thinking a little bit even about what post-traumatic stress disorder looks like, right? So thinking about um, the kind of the criteria for that, so uh, where you're persistently kind of um, re-experiencing a threat, you know, to yourself, right? This is more along intimate um, relational breaches and so those can include things like unwanted memories nightmares flashbacks um, emotional distress Um, another area is avoidance where you'll really you know partners will sometimes try to block those feelings Um, it also can affect um, negative alterations so when you you start to Sometimes the partners will get into this place of being really negative and kind of taking things on um, about themselves when it's really not, right? We don't ever blame a partner for their um, person sexually acting out. And then also those alterations in arousal and reactivity, that's a big one where you're, you know, kind of hypervigilant, right? The, the traumatized t- brain really has that sense of being hypervigilant, and sort of scanning the environment for those dangers. So helping them to kind of put that in a frame and and say, yeah, these are some of the hallmarks that we see. These are how other women also, other partners respond to their trauma, their specific betrayal trauma. Well, and you have some resources that you recommend that you feel have been very, very helpful. Can you share those resources with us? Yeah, for sure. Um, So let's see. Um, When I start working with partners, as far as resources, you know, starting with kind of normalizing, I will also, in individual therapy and in group work, I like to use um, a workbook that was created by Marsha Means, and um, she's a co-author Um, of your sexually addicted spouse and so I really like that workbook because it helps give kind of a frame um, and some talking points so I don't always use it uh, sequentially but it definitely is a tool or a resource um, that can help partners especially when you know you can't be with them all day long they have a resource that they can take home Um, it also asks them to journal and it's set up really nicely there. Um, we also do run partner groups at our facility, so uh, when partners are ready for that, you know, bringing them into community with other partners can be really helpful. 
Well, and you um, recommend one of our colleagues' books, uh, Moving Beyond Betrayal, The Five-Step Boundary Solution for Partners of Sex Addicts. Talk a little bit about why her workbook is so good. Yeah, so let's see. I really, really like her workbook because it breaks down, um, you know, what what boundaries look like, right? And so um, I think I had shared a little bit for you. Um, I have a story of working with a partner and, in a group initially when I introduced the concept of boundaries that she pushed back a little bit on that. So um, in her book, she's really able to break boundaries down into different areas. So um, when you think about like listening boundaries or talking boundaries or sexual boundaries, um, she also talks about a personal energy boundary that I liked a lot. And so those boundaries are really loving shields that you put kind of around your heart and they're, um, you know, they're helpful um, to set safety for yourself and then also how your, your person, your spouse or whoever that may be, um, how, you know, what rules they kind of need to abide by for your safety. And so by the end, um, actually kind of gently working with this partner to, to look at boundaries, um, it was fascinating. Two weeks later, she came back to group, and um, she was a subject matter expert, and she had used the book um, that we had mentioned as, as well as some podcasts. I, I also believe that were by um, Vicki Tidwell-Palmer. And so it was one of those moments as a clinician where my client was teaching me and the group. And so um, I think just really, you know, knowing that that can be a scary concept initially, um, but when you lean into it, when you have somebody really in your camp that's helping you um, look at that, uh, they can be really helpful. And um, I think the other concept that's helpful is the detachment, right? So that um, that is also explained really well in Marsha Means' Healing and Joy Workbook. Um, but that whole notion of, you know, kind of being um, detached in a healthy way, right? So detachment doesn't mean that we... We're, we move out of being relational. We we don't want that. We want to stay relational. But it does mean that you you are able to look and see that you and your um, addicted spouse each have your own healing journey. And if you're able to kind of step into your own journey a little bit better, and um, and then allow your your addict or um, your spouse to dive into their work, right, and kind of letting go of um, being able to to um, get kind of pulled into that chaos sometimes, if that makes sense. Well, 100%, and we know that women or men that suffer from trauma not only get pulled into it, but they have trouble processing it because of the way that the brain is wired and and the way it has affected their ability to reason and to work through things. So talk a little bit about how you believe trauma affects people's mind, body, and spirit. Yeah. Um, okay. And let me, I guess I'll kind of frame this in some of the common things that I see in partners. So so one thing when the partners come in, they really struggle with the meaning, right, the meaning of the past or, for that matter, the present. 
And so um, I was I was really I was thinking uh, um, about the book by Stephen Afterburn and Jason Martinkiss, The Worthy of Her Trust. And he has a line in there where he talks about how the addict's past becomes the partner's present. And that moment sometimes happens kind of like a, you know, nuclear holocaust for the partner, right? And so there's that disparity initially that the acting out person has been living that. And then this, this partner gets it kind of dropped upon them, sort of like a bomb, hence bomb drop. And so I think that that trauma response, right, we're trying to, our brains are struggling to put together this narrative of, you know, what does this mean now? It's so confusing. What did it mean then? Um, so in essence, they're trying to figure out their, you know, what are their, what memories are real? What part of their life from back then was, was real? And then what does that mean going forward? And so there's a fabulous article that I just received in the APSAT training that um, looks like it was posted in the New York Times called uh, Great Betrayals by Anna Fells. And so she really helps um, the understand that kind of that part for the traumatized partner, that putting together your narrative. So walking through um, that space of creating, it's like the 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzle that the partners have to put together. And that process, even though it initially is really chaotic, um, as you're trusting that process and you're working with somebody that's trauma-informed, when those pieces start to fall into place, um, then our brains are better able to kind of deal with those um, those experiences, and and they fall into place a little bit at a time. Yeah, that was. I love that article. I I hope our listening audience can look that up. Will you repeat back what you believe that article is in its totality? Yeah, and I also included links um, to you and um, for everything that I'm talking about, but it's called um, Great Betrayals, and the author is Anna Fells, F-E-L-S, um, and it was in 2013. Um, you know, the other really cool shout-out here is Daniel Siegel and Marion Solomon's uh, trauma book, the um, Healing Trauma, Attachment, Mind, Body, and Brain. They have some fascinating discussions in there about the mind and the psyche and the brain. And they're talking specifically when they're really parsing out what's the difference between the mind, the psyche, and the brain. They, they kind of talk about how our minds emerge from the interdependence of the brain and the interpersonal relationships. So if you think about that, um, in essence, uh, interdependence is a good thing. It's it's between two people. It's a mutual dependence, and in essence, we're through attachments initially with our parents, and then we transfer those to our person. We're actually co-constructing meaning together. So that's that difference of the mind. Is when we come together, we co-construct that meaning, and so for partners, um, the the longing behind that question is. You know, so what does it mean that my co-creator wasn't who I thought they were back then, right? So that's when you hear those statements, um, you know, like it's not lost on me that today's Valentine's Day. So what does it mean 
how did I hold Valentine's Day now that I'm finding out two years ago he was acting out or, you know, X, Y, Z behavior, right? So the partners left to kind of figure out what does that mean? And and Solomon and Siegel have a word for that, and or um, it, and it's I just love this, but it's dyadic resonance, right? And so what that means is dyadic resonance is really the mutual influence of each person on the other, and it entails the sense of being present in each other's mind even during separation. And so this, I know this is probably more questions than answers, right? But that piece of you know, why sometimes uh, it doesn't help for partners initially to hear, to learn about compartmentalization and some of those others. Um, but that, and I don't know if this is a gender thing, Carol. I don't know if you've had experience with this, but, you know, that sense of um, that co-creation and how did that cognitive or the um, dyadic distant resonance of how did they, how did I get lost? Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. And, you know, what you're really referencing in a lot of respects is what I always tell people, you know, I I really do want you to be interdependent because that is the mark of a good, secure attachment, you know. Um, and what sex addiction obviously does is it ruptures the attachment that two people had, and as you indicated, really makes the partner, creates a situation where the partner questions everything. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that I believe um, about attachment is that when it's been traumatized, we have to very slowly look for ways of rebuilding that sense of self and security in the partner just in and of herself before we can then do the couple's work if she so desires, to work on the attachment. Right, yeah. And it's such a delicate balance, right? And, and you know, as you know, too, the frustrating part about this process is it's not quick. Um, it takes a while. But I think, you know, I think what you're on to, that, that self-love, right? There's even a word, I think it's called... Um, philautia love the Greeks called it and um, I think there's two meanings of it but in the most positive sense it's really about um, a self-love and it's incredibly rewarding but that journey for partners is initially right like just even working through that initial trauma and pain Um, but as they come out of that and they're able to work on those healthy connections you know that's that that piece of keeping them in community and connection. Um, I see that in the partners when they're able to, you know, hold boundaries or they're able to help other partners or, you know, they just, they, they get a new sense of who they are, right. And what their, what their walk is going to look like. And um, I think that self-love, you see it too. And partners really, turn that corner and they're able to, um, you know, in a healthy way detach and really lean into their own healing process. Well, and, you know, obviously you believe in 
family systems work, and you also believe in looking at this kind of betrayal through the trauma lens. And so many of our partners have had prior experiences where they were betrayed in some way where, again, their attachment had been fractured or ruptured, and they, you know, they may have spent 10 years getting it back together, meeting their husband, and then, lo and behold, it happens again. And they feel like, what is wrong with me? Why do I keep attracting people into my life like this? And I always say that it is not their fault that they didn't attract this kind of person into their life, that what ended up happening is that they just happened to have two or three betrayals at the same time. Do you believe that partners attract um, situations to be able to work out their childhood issues? You know, that's that's such a loaded question. I think I mean I think what ends up happening is we end up in situations where two two imperfect beautiful human beings come together with their own stuff, right? And and mm-hmm. with anybody, it doesn't matter what you know, what kind of background you had. I I don't know that many people come out of life completely unscathed, um right? So we know that um secure attachments are the best. Um, and and, a lot, and many people have those, but many of us have, you know, attachment bonds with their parents that were less than perfect. So regardless of what we, how we couple up, how we pair up, um, I, I guess I would answer that more as, um, you know, every relationship we get into is going to have its work to do. And I don't think necessarily people go around trying to attract trauma um, but yeah that's that's hard to putting two people together already sets you up to have some type of issues to have to work through right even in the good enough marriages um well you know it uh, you just said it perfectly when you said even in the good enough marriages because you and I were both trained in marital therapy and we learned that Oftentimes, we pick a partner who will help us work through our own childhood issues with our mother or father, and that that's normal, and it can be Mm -hmm. very necessary to do the self-growth as an adult. And yet, you and I also were trained via APSATS, and what we know is that addiction, sexual addiction, is so deceptive that our partners had no idea that they were getting into this. And that's why, no, they didn't attract it at all. Um, it, it happened to them, and they need to grow from it, and they need to work through it in any way they think is possible. But definitely being able to restore their sense of self and possibly the marriage, maybe not, but they're definitely their sense of self is super important. Now, let me yeah, ask Carol, you. I, yeah, I love so, that. I was thinking as you were talking about James Framo, I don't know if you remember him from from back in the education days, but he actually talk, talks about how mates are, you know, uh, picked with uncanny accuracy, right? And so whether you, whether you buy into that or um, – but it speaks to that part that you were saying, you know, that we – 
can sometimes attract people that will help us with growth. And then I think another layer of that is, you know, a little bit about what we know um, about that stage of limerous, right? When we initially meet people, there's this, um, I don't know if people can remember back to when they were dating, how that stage of just the euphoria and, and you're kind of blinded to people's um, negative traits because all you're sensing is the really good stuff. So also, Carol, I don't know if this holds true for you, but remembering that in the initial stages of a relationship, you're not really in the best biological place to really be noticing the negative traits. There's, there's, there's reasons behind that. So that it's, it's not that somebody, you know, to go back and beat themselves up about not seeing something, kind of the way it works when we're first getting into relationship it's kind of like you really get to see the real person warts and all about you know 18 to 24 months into that relationship if that makes sense oh 100 percent. so now share a little bit more because i i kind of diverted you and i'm sorry to have done that but in this solomon book explain a little bit more about this resonance and and how it would apply to our partners that are listening to the show today. The dyadic resonance, is that what we're talking about? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, I really think that's a great area for some more understanding. So, um, and this plays into a lot of the part where the partner's um, it's very, very hard to hold, you know, how could they do this, right? And so as a clinician, we have our learning from that, and we understand that it's complex, it's multilayered, it's specific to each addict, right? We're looking at their trauma history and their sexual timeline. There's so many things that go into it. Um, but I think... Um, you know, sometimes the compartmentalization and the dissociation and talking about pornography or sexually, um, sexual addiction as a disease doesn't always hit that mark for the partner. So although all that information is needed, it misses that dyadic resonance piece part where they really are saying, where was I in his heart or mind? And so, um, you know, Solomon and Siegel kind of I, I part of their book I love that really talks about even as healers how we can help partners um, with their processing of the of the here and now events is working with that autonomic so that's the ability to place ourselves in the past and the future and even situations that haven't happened so really helping the partner create that form of awareness and explore its meaning um, and so that kind of, I think, helps the partners to, to put their pain and experience into a narrative. So put, helping them put words to those deep, deeply painful experiences that they're working through, if that, if that kind of helps frame that. Absolutely. When you're working with trauma and you've got a partner who just keeps being triggered and obviously triggers there are two types of triggers one type where it is like you said valentine's day and maybe that was the month that they found out about discovery four years ago 
And then there's the other kind of triggers that just kind of come up and they don't know why they've experienced a trigger. What do you tell a partner or how do you help a partner work through traumatic event of triggers? Yeah, that's a great question, Carol. So as you know, triggers are so intrusive and and I don't think many partners come out unscathed from triggers. Um, I find that it helps immensely to explain the biological process that happens around trigger. And so, um, and I've included this in the um, document that I sent you, but the best description of the biological experience I've ever come across is contained within the Affair Recovery video series. Um, and both of those videos are presented by MJ Dennis, who is, it looks like a, she's a fellow, um, she's involved in the APSAT program, and she's also a marriage and family therapist. Um, and she's going to be on the show next week. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so cool. Yes. Yeah. So I won't steal her thunder, but um, her videos are fantastic, and she really does break down trauma in, in embedded in the human attachment theory, right? So we're created to be in relationship. We're bonded to our person. When, um, you know, we have this attachment distress that's caused by the sexually acting out or infidelity or pornography use, um, this attachment distress is profound. And it's profound not because there's something wrong with the partner. It's because we we're bonded to them. And they really paradoxically are supposed to be our safe person, and they've just created a traumatic unsafeness. So explaining to partners that the trigger, this is where the brain enters in. And so just as the frontal lobe controls the critical thinking and impulse control, the amygdala, um, its job is really to detect danger and we all know, you know, these we're hyper vigilance, right, of partners. And so the amygdala is kind of looking at the environment for danger. And what happens is, um, and MJ does a great job of describing this, is when the amygdala senses danger, it shoots off a shot of adrenaline. And then, the, you know, you have, to, you have three choices to that. You can fight, flight, or freeze. So she gives it a beautiful analogy of the amygdala also not being able to discern. So it can't really tell the difference between a garden hose and a snake, right, until a few times, moments have passed. So I think explaining to partners and their significant other that triggers are a biological process that is happening to them. They're not asking for this it happens and it happens quickly and so um you know remembering that triggers take a psychological and an emotional toll on the partner um, and it can be really scary for the partner too but they you know they're not inviting this they don't want this it it happens to them and it's very scary um, and she does go on to talk about kind of an anecdote for that, but um, I'll send the link so people can see these videos because they're phenomenal. Excellent. I would love that. And you can always, listeners out there, contact me at carol at carolthecoach.com, and I will pay it forward and send you the link so that you can see some of this stuff. And, you know, Angela, how can our listening audience get to know you? How can they find out more about you? 
Yeah, so um, let's see. So I'm in the I'm in Seattle, and I work at a place called Pacific Behavioral Health. Um, so if you if you Google Pacific Behavioral Health, it'll pull up our website, and then under Team, they can find me, Angela Bolin. Um, our campus is located uh, right outside of Microsoft. Um, our clinic specializes in all aspects of sexual health, including sexual addiction, problematic sexual behaviors, as well as sexual wellness and functioning. So we de- definitely operate from a systems and trauma-informed perspective. Um, we just launched a new um, uh, website for the family, which is on there too. So um, uh, you can take a look at that. It's uh, www.nurturingfamilytherapy.com. So still part of Pacific Behavioral Health, but a specific resource for, you know, as you know, Carol, that the the families and children and teens are also impacted by this um, this delicate life situation that happens. So, yeah, that's a little yes, bit about absolutely. me and where I work. Yeah. You know, you can hear the passion in your voice. You know, we really believe that it's important to help partners get through this process so that they can live as normally as possible. And I kind of think that it usually takes three to five years to really learn to help manage the triggers and their trauma and work on the relational piece or not, depending on whatever they choose. What do you think? How long do you think trauma impacts a partner? Yeah, Carol, gosh, I I think it's so great to put it out there that it's longer than you expect so that, you know, partners can normalize that part of it. Uh, The fascinating thing in this work is just that that timeline is so different from, you know, for everyone, but... Uh, gosh, I had a case recently where a beautiful couple in um, in their late 60s came in, and they had never dealt with the trauma. So, you know, 35 years had passed, and she was right there at ground zero. Uh, and it was a, a, a kind of a small triggering event that happened. So, you know, I guess two parts of that that, you know, certainly know that everybody's timeline is different, and it, it may take a little bit longer but also know that when you're doing this incredibly hard work, you do come through it. And, you know, I, I, my, one of the thoughts I have is you can't go under trauma, you can't go over trauma, you have to go through it. But that process of walking through something um, that is so difficult and yet so necessary is where the partners can reclaim parts of themselves and grow and flourish and I know you know if you're at ground zero that's probably hard to hear right now but maybe some of the partners that are a little further along in the journey are getting glimpses of that and so really just offering that the timeline isn't going to happen on on your timeline unfortunately but that it is possible and I see women come out the other side that are whole and healthy and empowered and just have a completely different reverence for life and relationships. And um, so today is a great day to start reclaiming your narrative. 
Well, and you know, you said that about Valentine's Day, and for couples that have not gone through any kind of betrayal, Valentine's Day is an incredibly disappointing day because it's the day when so many people fantasize that they're going to get their needs met, and unfortunately, many of them don't. But then mm-hmm. you take something like betrayal trauma and you put Valentine's Day together and, and it almost leaves somebody who's been traumatized that inability to know how do I celebrate this or how do I not celebrate this allegedly romantic day. Um, so for your partners who are experiencing Valentine's Day today, what kind of advice are you giving them? Well, I think initially just to talk about it, just say, hey, this is coming up. What are your thoughts around this holiday, right? So, and, you know, it it goes both ways. Sometimes it doesn't occur. Sometimes it is. Well, yeah, you know, it, it's probably one of the worst days up there with an anniversary. And, and so we work on, like, okay, what part of this can you reclaim? Do you have children that you were – you know, you did something special. You have a girlfriend that you were able to reach out and let her know that you loved her, or did you receive some type of a, you know, I don't know, some type of a text or something from a friend. So reclaiming pieces of Valentine's Day that are meaningful for you. Um, I've heard beautiful stories of, of partners when, you know, they just knew all oh, Valentine's Day is just going to be trashed. They'd start a new tradition where they would shower their grandmother with Valentine's, right? They had a partner who her grandfather had passed recently, so she poured her heart into creating new meaning around Valentine's Day. I like that. And I'm a big believer in, you know, getting in touch with a girlfriend and doing something fun, something nurturing, something that you want to do. I mean, I'm not sure about you, Angela, but I'm 40, uh, at 44, when I first got married, I was the poster child for being single, and it was my male and female friends that were my lifeline. And I love being with girlfriends. It's always difficult when I hear somebody say, um, you know, I don't trust women. I don't trust them at all. I'm, I do much better with men. Because I think they're really missing out on a wonderful resource to help them through their life. Oh, yeah, I know. I I agree with you, Carol. Those girlfriend connections can be, you know, lifesavers. And so, gosh, I guess that would be hard if a, a woman in midlife hadn't, you know, doesn't have a base. And so trying to maybe really dig into um, you know, are there some really safe women that I could try putting myself out there with and and try to build some of those connections? But I can see how, right, the source of um, part of their trauma could be housed in other women and the sexuality of other women. And so, um, yeah, and I, you know, gosh, I even think it's more important from that perspective when you look at um, the the trauma part of that, that we can we can really help our brains, right? The neuroplasticity mm-hmm. of our brains. We can help uh, retrain our brains to have safe women and and be in communion and yeah, very life giving. Absolutely. So now, what do you have any future aspirations for yourself? What's going on in your life as we begin to end the show? Share with our listening audience a little bit about 
what you're hoping to do. Yeah, so um, my, what's weighing on my heart right now is um, I'm actually a practicum-level Gottman um, clinician, and I was recently introduced to Dr. Bob Navarra's work on couples and addiction, which is offered through the Gottman Institute. And so um, he, Dr. Navarra's work is really exciting, and as you might know, Carol, um, there is a little bit of a lag in what do we do with couples right out of kind of that, you know, bomb drop time when they're first finding out, right? And so uh, Dr. Navarra is kind of challenging that he has a different way to think about it. And, you know, that in essence, some of the other models are kind of separating couples during that time where, you know, there's part of it that they need to be working together and so it's weighing on my heart i just finished his module um, that's offered through the gottman institute about couples and addiction and um, that's the passion of my heart to figure out how i might be able to look at some type of a discourse and um, what would be helpful and healing for couples during this time well you're singing my song because Many of the listening audience knows that I've got in publication. Actually, I just found out that the book is ready, um, not to be released yet, but they've done the editing, and now we're going to get ready to do the graphics. And it's a workbook for sex addicts on how to develop empathy. And, And I know, Angela, you know that I don't think couples should do couples work right off the bat either when they've been through this kind of trauma, but I do think early couples recovery work helps them to begin to learn how to communicate with each other, set some boundaries, use reflective listening, and most importantly, it helps addicts learn how to empathize with their partner's pain. And when an addict can do that, then he helps to heal the wounds that he created, and it actually builds his self-esteem too. So I think Bob Navarro's work sounds really, really exciting. Yeah, Nancy, or Carol, you just nailed all of that. So that whole piece of, you know, what do we even call that time frame? Because it wouldn't be couples therapy. It would be discernment or whatever. Um, I can't wait for your book to come out ever since you mentioned it during training. I'm going to be, I think, first on the list to get it. Um, and I do think there are pieces when you're working, you know, when you're in a safe enough place, learning that empathy real-time for the men in a very safe and structured, um, you know, scaffold is super, super helpful. So, yeah, tons of possibilities. I'm so excited about it. I can't wait to get my hands on your book, and I'm so thankful for this AppSats community. Well, thank you so much, Angela, and the same to you. Keep us posted. We'd love to hear more about Dr. Navarro's work. And um, yeah. we'll have you back on the show again, okay? Okay. Yes. Thank you so much. All right. You okay. are so welcome. Take and care. thank you so much for helping our partners learn more and more about trauma. Make it a great yes. week. <laughs> yes, you All too. Right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye. So that was Angela Bolin. And as you can see, she is really somebody who's devoted to healing the trauma that occurs from sexual addiction. Now, I'm going to ask you something. I've got to, I want to know if you believe that you're coping 
with the panic, the anxiety, and the trauma that is occurring in your life. I mean, really, one of the things that I believe is that you've got to know how to deal with anxiety. You've got to be able to know how to deal with panic. And that is, that's really hard. And so I'm going to give you just a few tips, and I want you to think about how you can apply them this week. Remember that although your feelings and symptoms are frightening, they likely are not dangerous or harmful. That was the past. You are in the present, and you get to control your life by being able to take care of yourself. I want you to understand that what you're experiencing is merely an exaggeration of your greatest fear. You've been duped, it's been hard, and now your fears are there to keep you safe. But you need to know how to regulate them so that they don't overwhelm or overtake you. So don't try to fight your feelings or wish them away. The more you're willing to face them, stay in the moment, and balance them with appreciation and gratitude, not for the fear, but for other things in your life, the better you'll be able to pace the panic. All right, I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheets, and I'm so honored to be with you every week on this Apsat sponsored show. So as I say, at the end of every radio show, there'll only be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself and make it a great week. For more information, go to apsats.org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal.